Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jenny Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us today is Professor Johanna Zueta from Toyo University in Japan. Her new book, Okinawa Women's Stories of Migration from War Brides to Ise, was recently published by Routledge. It's currently available in hardback and ebook. In this book, Johanna turns her focus to a group of women in Okinawa who married to non-Western men stationed in Okinawa during the occupation era. And um, Johanna studies their life stories as well as their identity formation through their marriage and afterwards. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today again. Thank you so much, Jeannie, for inviting me. You've uh, previously joined us to talk about your book on uh, transnational identities on the Okinawa military base. So how have, been, how have you been since then? Yes, um, it, was, it was good. Um, I also gave um, several book talks on that, um, about that book and on that issue as well. And as you know, this current book that I have, um, this recent book on Okinawan women, they're pretty much um, related to, to the previous book, right? In terms of the population that I studied, how they're related to each other, etc. Indeed, that's very nice. So uh, what uh, brought your attention to Okinawa women's stories and especially this group of um, war brides? Yes. Um, if you remember in my first monograph, I looked at base workers um, in Okinawa, um, many of which um, retired because of old age. But then these base workers were actually half Filipino and half Okinawans. Right, and their mothers were Okinawans. So I wanted to focus more on like um, the Okinawan women because most of the studies done on them, especially the so-called war brides, 
were the ones who went to the U.S., right, who married um, American men. There were also, or there was, I think I only know of one, um, one work on women, Japanese women who went to Australia as war brides. But then because of my work on base workers, I also, on these um, half Okinawan, half Filipino base workers, I got to know their mothers um, while doing field work. So I also did research, a little bit of research on them when I was doing my PhD and then expanded my research on these women when I was doing my postdoctoral um, research. Um, and then I decided to write a book about them because I believe that their stories need to be told to the world. Um, however, it's difficult because not many of them were not, I mean, not many of them were, were um, open about their stories. So even their kids, their children, their grandchildren didn't know much about um, these women. Um, so, but then I said, well, um, I, I just need to, you know, conduct some interviews, talk to them so that I'll get to know more about their lives and then eventually t- tell their stories to the world. Yes. That's, uh, that's really amazing. I thinking that you're working to preserve the memory of this generation who, uh, as your book mentions, we don't have many of um, these women left. Um, uh, like most of them have passed away already. Um, but um, yeah, so how is, uh, how is your book struct- structured? Yes, um, what I did was, because I am a sociologist, so I was um, curious about their, their old age, right? Their lives at present. Um, so I, ta- um, I talked to them about that. And then, of course, um, I also had to know um, their beginnings. So um, most of them experienced the war which really left many of them traumatized because they did not talk about the Okinawan, the Battle of Okinawa right, during World War II to their kids, to their grandchildren. So not many of them um, knew about their parents or their mothers or their grandmothers' lives in Okinawa prior to their migration to the Philippines. So I asked them about that. In fact, um, Chapter 2, I think, Yes, chapter two talked about this woman's um, experiences during the Battle of Okinawa. So in a way, I structured it as, you know, telling the story of the Battle of Okinawa from this person's point of view. And she was the only one who, you know, shared about her experiences because the others, they told me about their experiences in the Philippines, but not um, the Battle of Okinawa. They just told me, okay, I was born here, etc., and then I moved to the Philippines. So in a way... Uh, the Battle of Okinawa was somehow erased from their memories. Um, yeah, and then, so it's structured in such a way that um, I talked about their histories. I talked about the American occupation from their perspective, right? how they met, you know, these base workers. Um, as I've mentioned, um, most of these war brides in Okinawa um, met American men, right? And that's why they're called war brides because they met them in a way during the war or post-war, right? That's the definition of a war bride, especially from a Japanese perspective. And then, but then there's this um, group of Okinawan women. There are quite a number 
who did not marry Americans. They married Filipinos. So I, I mentioned in my book that they, um, they, they married the other occupier, which are Filipinos, right? So in a way, Filipinos were part of the Allied forces who somehow occupied um, Japan, right, um, and Okinawa. And I said, you know, this is a significant group, and why, why don't many people know about this? I mean, you, you go to Okinawa, they know about it, but then academically, it's under-researched. So I said, I have to write this book. So that's how I structured it. And then I looked at, because their migration stories are pretty much um, interesting. So I looked at their marriage to Filipinos, their eventual migration to the Philippines, their lives in the Philippines, and many of them stayed in the Philippines. However, there's um, quite a number also who returned to Okinawa in their latter years. So in their 60s, 70s, right, for, for many reasons. And there's also this, one of the last chapters, I also looked at the issue of death and burial, which I think is important because um, it, was, it was also pretty much, um, um, I wasn't really looking at that, but then um, these women talking about death, right, they're, they call it the haka, their their burial um, sites, right? Um, they, it just popped out um, in some of the interviews that I did, so I said this might be um, very very significant. That's why I approached it from a life course perspective, from their beginnings in Okinawa, their their experience of the war, and then end of life. So that's how I structured it. I see. Now, for um, for those of us who might not be so familiar with this period of history and um, for, I guess, more background information on these war brides, so from what um, time period did they, did most of them got married, get married? And um, do we know how many of them were there? Yes. Um, so 1945, the war ended, and then... Um, the American um, Occupation Army, right, the USCAR also. The government brought in um, labor from the Philippines, from India, other parts of the world, mostly from the Philippines because of its colonial um, history, right, with the U.S. And so these intermarriages occurred, I think, late 40s, early 50s. So that was the time when a lot of these Okinawans, the locals, were working on base or around the bases. And most of these women I encountered, the Okinawan women, they were working um, either as maids, right, domestic helpers um, for, for families inside the base, or um, cleaners, um, waitresses, right? Some of them worked as um, store clerks in, inside the bases, right, the concessionaires. Um, so, so they met these Filipinos um, because of their work, because they, they were working on base or around the bases. And for many of them, because they married quite young, for many of them, they, it's their first um, relationship, right? So, yeah, so I, I, I think I spoke to, I think, two of them who explicitly told me that, oh, he's actually my first boyfriend and then we got married. So, so yeah, um, it's really um, pretty much interesting. And then 
after that, they, these women went back to the Philippines or went to the Philippines with their husbands because um, their husbands' work contracts were ended or were terminated, right? Some were terminated um, for, for several reasons. Some just ended and they did not renew it. Um, for some of these um, workers, they, they decided to continue staying in Okinawa. So they were able to get um, jobs. But my focus um, was on these women who went to the Philippines. So the migration to the Philippines was in, I think, the nineteen mid-1950s, late 1950s. So that period. And how many of them um, migrated? It's really difficult to get hold of the exact number. But there's an estimated um, thousand, around 1,000 who married and then went um, back to, or I'm sorry, went went to the Philippines with their husbands. And then um, I had data from the Philippine Okinawan Society. Um, how do you call this? This uh, membership um, membership directory of the first generation Okinawans who went to um, the Philippines. So these were the women and then the second generation, third generation. So I got hold of that um, almost 20 years ago. And there were around 1,000 women listed, right? But of course, um, there were some women who were not members. Um, so, so probably they were not registered. So let's put it to 1,000 or so. So that's, I think, a generous, um, general estimate. Yeah, and that's really not a small number. Um, so in uh, in your book, you referred them as you referred to them as ise in Japanese, as in first generation. So for these um, war brides who went back to the Philippines, or I shouldn't say go back, um, while well, they they traveled to the Philippines with their family. What's the transition like for them um, to transition from li- life in Okinawa to life in Philippines? And I guess, how does the identity of these first generation um, women shape their self-identification um, to connect with your first book and the way they position themselves, the way they see themselves within the Philippine society? Yes. Um, well, um, I call them Issei because it's how they identify themselves. So they identify themselves not as Senso Hanayome or War Brides, but as Issei, meaning their first generation. So it's like I felt when I was listening to them, so I, I was thinking, oh, I think they're they're claiming it, that they are actually first generation migrants, that they really traveled and brought along their um their lives and Okinawan culture with them. So transition was not smooth for many of them because for most of them, maybe all of them, it's their first time to travel outside Okinawa. And then so you have issues with language, with culture, right? It's totally different culture. Maybe not really the weather because it's mostly, you know, it's um, almost the same weather or climate. Um yeah, it's really integrating. And so many of them try to learn the language. In fact, most of them are fluent in the language of um, the, um, 
yeah, in some of the Philippine language, some of the Philippine languages, not only Tagalog. So, so yes, um, they also told me that because they were based in the Philippines, they tried to bring up their children in a more Filipino way, so as um, to be able to integrate in Philippine society. And um, it's, I think, also because during that time, um, sentiments against the Japanese were pretty much um, not good because of the war, right? So, so yeah, and I also encountered um, some of the their children, right? So when I was talking to them, um, when when I was writing my first book, they experienced um, bullying or discrimination because of their Japanese parentage, right? So some women um, experienced that, but some said that you know they they were able to overcome these kinds of experiences because they they really um, tried to know more about um, the Philippines, right? The, uh, the culture and the language. And from another perspective, did you get a chance to uh, see how the Philippine society viewed these war brides at the time? Yes. Um, I, um, I think I wrote somewhere that some of the husbands' um, families didn't really like the the women because of the history, right, of um, of the war. So, and these women were actually seen as Japonesa, or were called as Japonesa. Japonesa is the Tagalog or the Spanish term for Japanese woman. But they're not actually, well, technically they're Japanese, but they're actually from Okinawa. So they were in a way lumped um, as to this category of Japanese. And for the Filipinos during that time, if you're Japanese, then you're the enemy, right? So there was this, um, yeah, um, maybe tension or this um, discrimination towards these women because they were seen as the enemy. But that, that, that changed because they were able to integrate and because of um, historical changes as well, um, especially during the 70s when Japan... Um, started um, um, becoming the the power in Asia, right? The bubble economy, etc. Yes. Now, do some of these women return to Japan after all? Um, and I guess what factors decide did their choice of whether to remain Philippine or to return to home? Yes, um, I saw some structural factors um, like. Um, the Japanese economy, for example. Um, and then some of them returned because their kid or yeah, their children wanted to return or they wanted to work in Okinawa and so they accompanied their children to Okinawa. Um, some of them returned for medical purposes. So, so I met like some women in their 60s, 70s who returned um, yeah, who returned during their 60s, 70s because of um, medical reasons and they preferred to um, um, to be treated in, in, in Okinawa. Um, some of them also returned because their children decided to work in Okinawa and stay in Okinawa permanently. So they said, okay, why will I stay in the Philippines? Um, my husband is gone. So, so they went back home. Some did not go back 
primarily because they, their families are mostly in the Philippines. So they decided to stay in the Philippines. Some of them also decided not to go back because they became estranged with their natal families because they were disowned for marrying an outsider. So it's pretty much varied. But yeah, if you look at structural, um, structural factors, it would be the economy, um, economic reasons, right? Um, and then if you look at more micro-level reasons, it's because of the family, family-related reasons. Yeah. And after they um, return to Japan, how does this, um, you mentioned that this, for some of them, their marriage with a non-Japanese person affected their relationship with the family. So after these brides returned to Japan, um, how does their, how did their, um, I guess, identity or self-identification um, change? Or was there any kinds of change um, after they came back to living Japan? And how did, I guess, how did the Japanese society view them after their return? One thing that's significant um, when they returned was the fact that most of them are Catholics, they converted to Catholicism because, um, well, most of their um, husbands are Catholics. And to raise their children as Catholics, they had to convert. That was during that time, back in those days. Um, so, And they became really devout Catholics. So when they returned to Okinawa, they looked for churches, Catholic churches. And in fact, when I did my fieldwork in one of these Catholic churches, um, the Issei, so say so they call themselves Issei, many of them didn't know the, um, each other when they were in the Philippines because they were based in different provinces. They only got to know them, um, each other at church in Okinawa. And then they found out that they had similar history, similar stories because they lived in the Philippines. They married a Filipino. They lived in the Philippines for 20, 30 years. And so they became really good friends and um, I quoted one um, of these ladies, and she said that um, many of she encountered Okinawans saying that they're different because they believe in a God that's that's um, being believed by foreigners. So Gaikokujin no Kami o Shinjite or something like that. Because um, originally, um, Okinawa was not Christian, right? So, so in a way, they're minority. Um, the fact that they also lived abroad for a long time and then they returned to an Okinawa, which is now part of Japan and very much developed. So that also um, um, created probably um, a reverse culture shock. Um, their language was also affected. Um, in fact, one of the women said that her siblings in Okinawa um, told her that she speaks Okinawan or she speaks Japanese differently. So, so those kinds of things, um, I think, mattered in terms of reintegration. Um, yeah, but and but then many of these women um, also had their families um, in Okinawa, so they brought their children, or their their children came first, worked on the basis, and then they they followed. So, so yeah most of these women returnees have their own families, their children in Okinawa, although they don't really stay with them, I mean, physically, like in the same house. So they have their own place. 
Out of complete curiosity, and I, I don't think this, um, I don't think your book went into very much detail about this, but I'm just uh, very curious. So when you say, when when we say Okinawan woman, do you mean in the sense that they were um, indigenous Okinawan? And, and as you were talking about how they faced these challenges after the return to, to Japan, um, I, I'm just wondering if their treatment um, as as these first-generation war brides, um, did that have also anything to do with um, the treatment of indigenous population in Okinawa from the, I guess, the the Japan, the, the mainland um, Japanese society? I think it has become part of their identity. They're really Okinawan, so we can argue that um, they are indigenous, although they did not say the word indigenous. Right, but they say that they are Okinawans, right? Okinawa Shushin, or some of them said that they're not. Um, they identify themselves. Um, let's say they're from Naha, but in Naha you also have districts. So they say, okay, I'm from I'm from Naha, yes, but then I'm originally from Uebaru, which is one district in Okinawa. So that's how they identify themselves. But yes, many, yeah, I, and not only many, all of these women. Um, are from Okinawa. So we can uh, argue that they are indigenous Okinawans. Um, they say that they imparted um, Okinawan ways also to their children. Sometimes food, um, words, for example, because they were talking in Filipino languages to their children, but then some Okinawan terms um, or even Japanese terms um, come up. In fact, I met some some Nisei, their children, um, in the Philippines who who were actually I don't want to say fluent, but they're knowledgeable in Okinawan. They know how to speak Okinawan because of their mothers, and they also know how to speak Japanese, the Hyojunko, right, standard Japanese. So, so yes, so they're pretty much um, aware that they're Okinawans, and then they they tell their children that we are. Okinawans. Um, I remember hearing some of these women even say the word um, Rikyu. So Rikyuans. So so yes. So they're pretty much um, conscious of that fact. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. 
So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. That's very fascinating. Thank you. Uh, now, in uh, in following chapter in chapter five, you discuss the uh, the 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 choices these women make um, when they face their late years and death. So, why is this such an important part in the discussion of war brides? Yes, um, that came up um, in an interview because they were talking about, and also some of my my um, informal conversations with them. They were talking about haka. Right, you're talking because they um um they're they're all Catholics, right? Um the the women that I spoke to, and then one of them were was was saying, oh, I already bought like this no kotsudo, this burial vault in a Catholic church. So when I die, I'm ready to, I'm already ready. Um and then I ju- I got curious because I said they they've been talking about death. So this might be important. And then that led me to really read up on um, burial, um, maybe protocols or traditions in Okinawa. And then I found out that because Okinawa is a highly patriarchal society, so if you're a woman and then you get married, so you, in a way, you move out of your natal family. So when you die you will be buried in, in this um, tomb, right, with your husband's family. So that's, that's, that's how it went um, during those times, right? If, you, if you're familiar with the, with the Rikyuan tombs, right, they're like turtleback tombs, like the Chinese, Chinese tombs of southern China, right? So they're, 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 they're like, like turtlebacks. Um, but if, you're a fo- if, if they married a foreigner, so that presents a problem because the foreigner doesn't have these tombs, right? Because they're not Okinawans. So what happens, right? Um, and so that led me to think. And then for these women, they also mentioned that one of these women mentioned that, okay, I still don't have um, a nokutsudo. I still don't have a haka. So I don't know where I will die because my husband already passed away and he's buried in the Philippines. And I'm in Okinawa. I cannot be buried in my family's tomb because I married a foreigner. So she told me about these things, and that's why I did more research about it. And I said, this can really present a problem, especially for international marriages like like this, right? Because tradition states that you cannot be married in your natal, um, your family's tomb because you married um, a foreigner, and a foreigner doesn't have a tomb in Okinawa. And for these returnees, for example, they're already um, in their old age. If they pass away, where will they be buried, right? Will they be shipped back, their bodies shipped back to the Philippines or their ashes shipped back to the Philippines or will they be um, buried in Okinawa? So so that came up. And then even the, the issue of cremation, which is pretty much done in Japan and also in Okinawa now, but back in the Philippines, it's not, it's 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 becoming common, but then people still prefer to be 
um how do you call that you know my so buried um as is with your body intact um yeah so so that's actually um an issue and in fact one of the women who was very much open to me and then she was telling me i don't know if she was able to to purchase um a, um a burial vault in in a catholic church in okinawa because she the last time i spoke to her she said oh i i i don't i still don't have this vault so i'm still thinking if i pass away will i be sent back to to be buried with my husband in the philippines so i didn't have an update on that and unfortunately um yeah she she passed away last last april yeah and um i wasn't because she she was actually looking forward to this book and i wasn't able to tell her that it was it, it was published um a month before but i think her family cremated her her body and she's she's here in okinawa i mean her ashes um are stored in in a catholic church in okinawa and her husband's somebody is in the philippines so so yeah so that's actually important because i also mentioned the cost of these tombs in okinawa in churches so so if you don't have the money so it will be a challenge if you want your body transported to the philippines to be with your husband it's also it costs money right i mean if 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 you're transporting ashes it's it costs less but still it costs money so so there there are very there are many factors that's not only related to you know war brides but you can expand it to the issue of international marriages migration and death right so especially if you have like specific cultural traditions like the muslims for example right that that they have to adhere to some cultural traditions that that can be a challenge if if they married outside um um a land that is not let's say muslim or they don't have muslim rituals so that can be a challenge indeed it can be mm-hmm. now in your research um you've talked to war brides you've collected their life stories is there one or two stories that really stood out to you yes um one was um the story that I spoke about in chapter two, when she um, told me about her experiences during the Battle of Okinawa. So I mean, hearing that from, I mean, directly from someone who experienced it versus reading it in a book is really different, right? Um, how she told me about, you know, experiencing being in a cave and then the family um, in the next cave or the cave beside where she was in was bombed, right? Or people were dying and she can hear screams or she was hearing screams. So, And she was all alone because her family was um, separated from her, right? So so these are really the voices of um, these women. So considering that the trauma that they experienced, right? This is very traumatic. That's why many of them were really tight-lipped that they that even their children didn't know about this, right? So you can just um, imagine, right, um, retelling how they can retell their stories. So that's one. And and 
um, yeah, I think um, most of the stories of the women when they moved to the Philippines, how they endured, right, um, being in a different place. And many of them actually were the only um, Okinawan or Japanese in the community. Hence, they had to um, integrate in the culture. And I also mentioned one case wherein this woman, because she was isolated, I mean, she, she didn't have anyone to talk to in Japanese or in Okinawan. She forgot speaking the language. And when I met her, she could only muster like an ohayo gozaimasu or good morning and arigato gozaimasu or uh, thank you. And then because she spoke the language of the South, Southern Philippines, which I don't speak, I had to talk to her um, using a translator, right? an interpreter, because she couldn't talk to me in Japanese and I couldn't talk to her in that Philippine language that she knows. Yeah, there are so many um, complicated issues that come from this or just from their marriage and from the situation that they had to be putting. Um, so in your research and encounter with them, what have you learned um, about their transnational identities in this sense and their current situation in both Japan and Southeast Asia? Yes, um, because these women have been or lived in the Philippines for the returnees. They lived in the Philippines for like 20 to 30 years. Um, I noticed that most of the returnees there, in a way, they can shift from being Okinawan and being Filipinos. For example, I hear them speak to their children in both Okinawan and Filipino. I mean, Japanese and Filipino. Sometimes mostly in Filipino. Um, they see me. They sometimes... Um, talk to me in Filipino and they even um, they're even concerned with um, some events back in the Philippines considering that they've been back here um, so that's that's one for those in the Philippines they are still pretty much um, pre-pandemic so I'm talking about pre-pandemic they still um, occasionally come back to Okinawa for visits and what's also interesting, because Okinawa has this Uchinanchu Taikai, the World Okinawan Festival, and the Issei, based in the Philippines, they they really, as much as possible, attend the Taikai, the festival, because that's a way for them to, well, to, to return, to be in touch with um, overseas Okinawans, and even their fellow Issei's who returned to Okinawa. Um, unfortunately, though, not many of them could make um, those trips um, previously because of old age, right? And and uh, the last Taikai that I attended in 2016, um, yeah, um, I met two Issei's. I've known them even before. They um, in 2011 when I joined them for the Taikai for the for the festival, they were pretty much um, mobile. But five years after 2016. They were, um, they had a difficulty walking, well, because of old age, right? So, and they were like, okay, can we still attend the next Taikai, which is actually this coming October, because of the pandemic. So it, it was supposed to be held last year, but I think it will be held this year. So I don't know if they're coming. So so yes, yeah, I guess that's so. Um, yeah, that's their transnational transnationality. 
um, to connect this with your previous book and to, um, I guess, uh, put it into a larger context, in this uh, project, you've discussed Japanese war, Japanese war, Okinawan war brides in Okinawa and Philippine, Philippine from perspectives of um, the history, culture, and the geopolitical situations that concerned multiple countries and regions and cultures. So this is such a complicated topic, and as you've mentioned earlier, um, there there are so many um, so many factors that uh, affected their uh, self self identification and uh, their uh, position in society. So how do you think um, with issues like this, uh, not just Okinawa war brides, but these uh, personnel that were involved? Um, with the occupation era from multiple countries, how do we better understand their stories in uh, contemporary issues like migration, identity, and cross-cultural marriage? Yes, um, I believe that uh, migration in Okinawa, um, yeah, if you're going to look at current migration in Okinawa or the current, let's say, um, foreign population in Okinawa. I also argued in my previous book that um, this is pretty much um, historical. It has historical basis, right? Um, especially with the workers on base, for, for instance. Um, how come you had Filipino workers on base or have Filipino workers, right? It's not just... Um, it's not just because of economic reasons that they came, right? It's, it's primarily because of the occupation of Okinawa, that these workers were hired by, by the U.S. occupation government, and this is really, um, I I mentioned in the book, the the, pre- the previous book, that there were treaties, there were letters from the USCAR to the Philippine government saying that okay, we need people, so we have to look at it in that context that the occupation is really important, and these intermarriages as well. Um, yeah, of course, this is this 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 occurred because of interme- uh, I'm sorry, because of um the occupation, but many of these um intermarriages also occurred because um of economic reasons, right? That many of these women they were hard up, um economically, and they thought that marriage to an American or to a foreigner during that time would probably um, lift them out of poverty. Of course, we also um, should not discount the fact that there was, you know, the, the concept of love is also involved, because in many of um, in many academic works, when you say um, they don't really look at, um, let's say, okay, falling in love as a as a factor, but but it also happened, right? And as I've mentioned, that um, some of these women they told me that. Um, um, my husband my, was my first boyfriend, so I took that as, okay, so this might be ex- an expression of love, right? Not really economic reason or etc. Um, yes, um, so that's, that's also an important thing. Um, looking at, let's say, international marriages, um, current international marriages, right? Um, I think it's also the same because we have the issue of marriage migrants, for instance, and that many think that, especially if you have marriage migrants from developing countries marrying men of developed countries such as Japan and Korea, um, they think of it 
from an economic perspective. Yes, that's that's that should not be discounted, but we also have to take into consideration emotions like love, for example. Um, that that's, that they also play a part in in these marriages. Um, yeah, and then in terms of identity, so so we see that currently, right? How these um, foreign women, marriage migrants, um, how they try to raise their children, um, maybe adapting a Japanese um, way of life, or let's say Japanese identity or their own culture's identity, their own country's identity. And that's what I saw as well for these war brides. And this was like back in the 50s, 60s. So, so in a way, um, um, this, this, this um, issue of international marriages is not new, right? Because it happened even before, albeit in a different um, context, right? Because, because of the war. And right now, we have these marriage migrants um, because of a um, different um, context and a different issue. Thank you. Yeah, this is, I, I guess, in a sense, is a bit of a heavy topic, but I'm really glad that your book is bringing this uh, problem, this, the, this situation and the challenges these women face to the world. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you very much. And thank you for your time uh, in taking this interview. Yes, thank you very much for your time as well. And for our listeners, um, to learn more about war brides in Okinawa and topics in uh, cross-cultural marriages and migration, make sure to check out this new book, Okinawa Women's Stories of Migration, From War Brides to Ise, by Dr. Johanna Zueta. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Please stay tuned for our next episode. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.